This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for the last night of Beyond the Bars 2021. My name is Cameron here at the Center for Justice. I want to extend a huge thank you to everyone who's made this year's conference possible, to our many speakers, to our team at the Center for Justice, and of course, to our most awesome partners at Haymarket who have made this virtual edition of the conference possible. We are so grateful for you. And to everyone who's tuned in over the last month, um, we're grateful for your presence. Tonight, we are closing out the conference with a conversation about visions and strategies for community safety with Ashley Woodard Henderson, Janelle Bouvet, Che Johnson Long, and Lex Stepling. And we also have a performance from Luke Nephew at the Peace Poets of the Peace Poets. Um, you can catch all of Beyond the Bars on Haymarket's YouTube page. Thank you again for joining us. Welcome to this session for Beyond the Bars, where we're going to be talking about building safe communities. And there's all these interchangeable terms that we all inherit and navigate through all the time around safety, public safety, community safety, interventions, preventions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the reality that drives this conversation that I believe is true for everybody, regardless of their own self-proclaimed placement on the ideological spectrum is that everybody wants to be safe and everybody wants the generations coming up after them to be safe and to have opportunity. And regardless of how anyone tries to paint the demands um, that we'll be hearing about in this dialogue, those demands are the thing that is pushing us in that direction to have safer outcomes and healthier communities. So we find ourselves in a good time to be having this conversation in a moment where some demands that might sound novel and others that we know are not are arriving in a much larger stage, so to speak. There's been a huge amplification of, of dialogues and demands and visions and work that's been happening at a community level for generations that has always worked, that has always been kind of the one driving force of safety in most communities. And of course, those models and those efforts and those visions have almost always and probably always existed outside of the dichotomy of how people imagine law enforcement or crime and punishment or the police. And so when you know a national dialogue emerged where people processed the thing, a demand like defund the police, and it became a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, lightning rod, so to speak, and, and a, a container for a lot of people's opinions on what works and what doesn't work, we're really lucky to have a group of folks here who have been not only leading on those visions and leading on those strategies around what safety really looks like, but also applying them and implementing them and speaking from experience and holding the line on defending the effectiveness of those models for so long. And eventually things break through. That's what's great about organizing is that it creates a set of inevitabilities that then we get to steward forward. So I'm very happy and grateful to be with everybody. And we're going to be talking about how these strategies and visions work at local, national, global levels, 
on how they work in policy spaces, be it local, be it state, be it national, be it federal, and also just how they fundamentally work and how we're looking forward as we drive that conversation and more importantly, drive that practice. So I'm really happy to have everyone here, really happy to be talking together. Um, we're gonna start in, in with our panelists and, and when I pass it over to you, please feel free to introduce yourself and to whatever extent you'd like. I'm gonna start with um, Andrea Ritchie and it's nice to see you and thank you for being here. And you've been doing a really exceptional job of kind of developing like an information clearinghouse on what this work looks like all over the country, which is so, so needed because as we all know, our organizing impacts tend to be successful, but also open to lots of misinterpretation and misrepresentation. So I'm grateful to you for that. And I'd like, if you will, to talk about the organizing that is happening across the country, how you see it, and how you see that kind of creating a you know, scaffolding effect from the local to the national to the federal and, and how that's going to reshape this country. That's the goal. Um, thanks so much, Lex. And, you know, we are all so um, inspired by and informed by and um, celebrating the work that y'all have been doing in L.A. early, early on in this struggle that really helped um, a lot of folks shape their demands and shape their strategies for formulating them. So, um, you know, sort of within uh, days from George Floyd being killed, you all were holding people's budget meetings on Zoom. And that's um, what the work has looked like across the country. And I think, you know, many folks know that things really kind of were starting before even um, May 27th in, in or May 24th, sorry, um, in part because the pan we were in a triple pandemic, right? We were in a pandemic of coronavirus. We were in the economic crisis that it precipitated. We were still reeling and are still reeling in a climate catastrophe. And there's a 500-year pandemic of um, genocidal uh, police and state violence against Black, Indigenous, and communities of color in this country. And so those things converged in May when people uh, watched the murder of George Floyd. And in a context where, for instance, in New York State, you know, the first thing the governor did in a pandemic, within days of a pandemic being declared, was cut health care. Um, and refuse. And then in New York City, they were cutting youth employment programs. They were cutting slashing social programs, but increasing the budget, the one billion dollar budget of the police department. And so across the country, um, folks saw what demands were coming out of Minneapolis, which is no more money to this police department, no more violence in this way, no more reform, dismantle. And and build a new vision of community safety. And people across the country were inspired, and many cut and paste the demands from Minneapolis into petitions that they then started sending to city council. Other folks like Dignity and Power Now and Justice LA and Communities United for Police Reform in New York and groups that had already been engaged in budget fights, including Black Visions um, and Reclaim the Block, had been in budget fights for years, had a more robust response, had more uh, in-depth uh, budget proposals, but really across the country, people were making the same demands, which is fund the things that we need to stay safe, um, particularly fund the things that Black communities need to survive this pandemic, and stop funding the things that are killing us, which the primary thing is police and military and um, other forms of state violence. And those demands evolved over the past year, and we kind of summarized where we saw the trends 
um, in those at interrupting criminalization in a report we just released called um, The Demand is Still Defund the Police. I guess I should also introduce myself. I'm Andrea. I'm a researcher at interrupting criminalization um, with Mariam Kaba. And um, we had put out a toolkit in June kind of reflecting uh, what folks were doing uh, in terms of budget demands, some really clarifying what defund means as a demand, that it wasn't like cut police departments kind of equally across the board so that they take their fair share of pandemic-related cuts, but it was about not just budgetary cuts, but about um, really decreasing the power and legitimacy and the scope and uh, actions of the police so that they have less power to kill us, less power to criminalize us, less power to harm us, and invest in the things that actually will keep us safe. And that people really were in this place of calling out the reality that policing not only is killing us, but also is not doing anything to protect us and subjecting people, including survivors, um, to more violence and less protection. Um, and therefore, we want to switch where the resources were going, but we also want to switch where the legitimacy was going in terms of what actually makes us safe and where we are investing to make things safe. And what do we need to survive this pandemic? What do we need to survive climate catastrophe? What do we need to build a just economy and not go back to the economy that was um, and created the conditions that, that allowed the pandemic to devastate black and brown communities so badly? So the so people went through one budget cycle in June, they went through another um, in the fall, and people have come out now and they're getting ready for the next budget cycle. And people are coordinating, as you're saying, it's a community safety is a very local issue, but people are coordinating across the country um, to learn together through different formations, including the Movement for Black Lives that um, Ash and I are both part of and are coordinating around also if we're trying to stop the flow of money into cops at the local level, that means we need to stop the flow of money to cops from the federal level. And we all saw that no matter where the money is coming from or what it's for, cops are there with their big bucket to capture it, right? So we saw, for instance, that you know in Chicago, there was money to, to support communities in surviving the pandemic that instead went to the Chicago Police Department that was aggravating the pandemic by policing people um, around mask wearing, public health orders, but not providing people what they needed to stay safe. And so um, folks are, have been coordinating in many different formations. We've been holding these learning communities where people have been sharing strategies, successes, pitfalls. You know, one city sees a cop, uh, a police department backlash in a particular way to the demands, and they talk about it in these calls, and it helps another department put something into their demands that'll prevent that from happening again. People are thinking about how Police Fraternal Association contracts are blocking demands for defund. They're also thinking about how consent decrees and all the things the Biden administration is winding up to sort of do again to reform and recuperate policing, including through the um, justice. I can't even say the name of it because there is no Justice in Policing Act. But the legislation that people are promoting right now that would not have saved George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Rayshard Brooks, anyone who was killed last year's life. Um, and we'll just put more money into police. Um, you know, people um, are looking to cut off federal funding sources as well to cops because, um, you know, there's one thing when it's a tax base, but there's also grants and federal sources and also military equipment coming through the federal government. So that's sort of it's evolved from, you know, the cops are still killing people. There's no amount of reform that's going to fix that. Stop increasing their funds dismantle these departments, build community safety to really detailed proposals coming from communities across the country on how to do that, and also collaborations across the country on how to do that. 
including a collaboration to launch a website at defundpolice.org, which I encourage everybody to visit. And you can learn all about what's happening locally and also how people are coordinating. And then also people escalating up to the federal level to talk about just really a wholesale reimagination of where we allocate our resources in this country, which isn't about reimagining policing. It's about dismantling policing and investing in the things that will actually keep us safe. Thank you for that. And um, it's, you know, you're creating a seamless transition. So I appreciate that. And it speaks to kind of how this is moving in a way that speaks to the fact that, you know, I believe that policy wins are a byproduct of strong organizing, not the other way around. And we're living in a moment where there's been a kind of collective actualization around the pandemic really being a, a failure of governance. And that law enforcement is a part of that failure of governments, governance, which I think is good because it's helping beat back any, you know, 80s and 90s style pro-police narrative that kind of claims that we need more police in moments of instability. Rather, it's helping, helping allow for what everybody feels, which is that, no, they're a part of that failure of governance that's causing the streets to be so stressed right now in communities across the country or, or in, you know, non-urban communities, a different level of desperation that folks are being pushed into. So that moves to a question I have for you, Ash, about how this applies to federal policy. Andrea made a really good point, and it's essential, and it's exciting that we're all having to and getting to put our hands on how we talk about budget and budget organizing and forcing the hands of government around how resources get moved. One of the excuses that decision makers use consistently are the blockades around the culture of governance, which again, kind of affirms our point. And that is that excuse is used more than anywhere when it comes to federal policymaking. So you have helped lead on the Breathe Act. And it's exciting because we finally have something in place to say, this is what a federal policy vision should look like. This is an actual starting place. I almost said first step, but I'm not going to go there. But this is an actual starting point. So can you talk to us about that, about what that process has been like? What are the fundamental drivers of that vision and where we find ourselves in that vision now? Absolutely. And, and thanks for this question. Y'all forgive me for the background noise. I'm on parent duty uh, today. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the Breathe Act and the process by which we came to landing it uh, is a process as old as the first enslaved African on the shores of this country, right? Part of the reason that it's so rooted and it feels like our people is because our people have been made, to Andrew's point, our people have been making the demand to defund the police, to divest from systems of harm and invest in systems that are actually useful towards building healthy and sustainable and equitable communities for a very, very, very long time. Um, that work precedes the movement for Black Lives uh, and that the Breathe work actually was preceded by work that Andrea and No Smart Part helped lead with folks like Marbury Stanley Butts and myself and Miriam Kaba and so many others uh, to develop the vision for Black Lives that we first launched in 2016 um, and then led to this moment uh, last summer where it became very, very clear that our people had clarity of vision, clarity of demands in regards to what we expected this country to do. Um, and we needed a legislative answer to that demand that we were hearing in the streets, that demand to defund the police. And so many of us across sector, across geography, uh, came together to say we can write our own bill. Now, I say this 
is a person who knows very, very, very little about legislative processes, right? I say this as a person who did not come through like political science degrees. I came to this work uh, of developing the Breathe Act through being a part of grassroots organizations on the ground uh, that were just tired of demanding what we wanted and not seeing elected officials be held accountable to it. Um, and that's true for so many people that were involved in the process of developing the Breathe Act. It was regular everyday people with our comrades in all sorts of sectors of the works saying that we could actually develop a federal omnibus bill that defunded the police. And when we talked about the police, we met all of the police to Andrea's point, right? We didn't mean, uh, you know, just the cops that are killing black people with impunity. We met, uh, you know, in our, in our neighborhoods when you, when we're the most privileged of folks, we were also talking about like the ICE agents in our neighborhoods. We were talking about customs and border patrol. We said we wanted to shut down the, the prisons and the jails. We met all of them, including the detention centers. And when we said we wanted to divest from the systems of harm, we wanted to invest those dollars into community-based solutions, right? We know that there are alternatives to calling 911 and then sending a, a guy with a gun to our neighborhoods. Uh, we wanted to make sure that there were new mechanisms for even more resources because our our neighborhoods are so historically underinvested in uh, that we could create even new money that incentivize us getting to a place of radical imagination around what a world beyond policing could look like, a, a place where we could actually be safe. So there's no need for that kind of level of law enforcement in the first place. And then some sort of mechanism that's legislated that holds elected officials accountable to the demand that we made, right? So essentially, the BREATHE Act does those four things. It divests money from the system of harm of punitive bureaucracy that has been impacting our communities for the negative for centuries. Uh, and then it invests those dollars that are divested into building those healthy, sustainable, equitable communities. Third, it, it creates these new pots of money that incentivize our communities to continue to reimagine public safety and put in community solutions. And then fourth, it holds elected officials accountable to the demands that we've made. You know, there's a lot of work right now to be done to make sure that the federal government doesn't give us what we would concede to, but what, what we actually deserve. So, you know, to Andrea's point, I just want to put a period on the end of that sentence. There is no such thing as justice in policing. And when our communities came together to say that we wanted to defund the police, we meant that. We meant that. We wanted to have a federal, a national conversation and a local conversation that centers our people, not the police. And justice in policing does just that. So for every point that folks could make about the Justice in Policing Act, I could make you a better argument about why Breathe is actually the alternative that our people deserve. Um, so I'm excited to be in this conversation with you all. I feel blessed to be in the streets with folks that are on this panel. And, and I truly believe that if all of us do our due diligence to say that we will be the champions on the ground of the Breathe Act, and demand that our elected officials in Congress also be our champions for the Breathe Act on the Hill. Um, I have no doubt that we will see defunding the police in our lifetime. I know it because we're already seeing it. And the tools that folks like Andrea have created, toolkits like what Che has created, defundthepolice.com, right? Like the breatheact.org, like all of these are resources that grassroots communities can be using to help us build that world right now. I'm so excited to be building that with y'all. Thank you. And it's true. It is happening. And, I, you know, there's that cliche in the movement sometimes of like, oh, we got to name our victories. And there's actually been so much winning in the past couple of years. It, 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 it gets hard to keep. It's hard to keep track of. And it's it's a result of real work. And it's a result of that kind of spirit that drives the work forward. Of, you know, we will lead and we will help develop things, but we won't compromise the vision. And it's it's again, I feel lots and lots of gratitude that that's that's kind of the climate now that we get to work in. Um, 
<clears throat> we, we, we went from kind of, although these things don't need to be siloed, we're talking, we went from kind of a local, local to federal analysis. And it, it is a good opportunity to talk to you, Janelle, because Native communities deal with both. And I don't think a lot of people understand how federal policy, especially around the criminal punishment system, is exerted over Native communities who are, you know, people claim have a certain level of sovereignty within this country. And that's where you see that myth fall short, as well as going up against local policy. And I would love if you could share some of the work that you've been leading with your community and exporting it from your community that's helping engineer really strong community safety outcomes. Yes, for sure. Um, I would just like to introduce myself. So, Gwe Sego Gwe and Ahawi Shingyats Ogate Huni Akwazasne Degidua. And so, I asked you if you carried peace with you, and I greeted you. And I also let you know that I'm from the Wolf Clan family, uh, that my home is here in Akwazasne, uh, which is uh, the uh, Mohawk, St. Regis Mohawk tribe, federally known reservation of the St. Regis Mohawk tribe. And um, I just wanted to uh, extend my appreciation for or, you know, the thoughtfulness of an inclusion that's happening out here. And so, um, yeah, so I'm super excited to be on this. Already have, like, got my thoughts rolling with uh, the other two uh, fabulous ladies that have uh, started us off. So, so yeah, there's there's definitely lots to talk about. And, you know, I'm formerly incarcerated. Uh, in 2010, I was sentenced to 12 and a half years uh, at Bedford Hills Maximum Security Prison uh, by New York City. And um, fortunately, I was able to get uh, the state to pay for my uh, lawyer. And uh, I was, uh, I won my appeal and was released um, about a little over two years later, uh, and my integration back. So mind you, geographically, politically, where I am is on the border, which means that I've been cultivated in an environment where I deal with agency all day long. And so part of my community is in Canada. The other part of my community is in the United States. And so we have been uh, very well versed in uh, working through political and law enforcement and all of that stuff. And, and there's uh, and at the same time, still, right, I, I'm absolutely just trying to survive addiction, poverty, um, all of those, um, you know, adversities that we unfortunately that are strategic, right, because we are the witness to the murder. And so, you know, with that being said, you know, I think that it was uh, very um uh, in, intentful of the U.S. government to strategically dismantle our families. And so they knew that as long as we were dismantled, we were going to be less empowered. And so our families were natural ecosystems to our uh, advocates, to all, all the supports that we needed. And so if I don't have mom or dad, or if I don't have this and that, I struggle and I become dependent on an institution to provide those services for me. Um, and so I think, yes, uh, all that speaks into a lot of this but uh, so in, in my integration and coming home, fortunately, I was able to uh, land a job with a coalition in my community that was addressing sexual assault and domestic violence. And so coming out of prison and um, and being given an opportunity. And I just want to say that there's a real undercurrent in community with women 
And so women are the undercurrent in the community that are really weaving all of these connections and helping uh, to continue to build foundation and to build integrity uh, within our families because we are the gatekeepers to the human life that enters this world. And so we've always held that level of authority. We've always held that level of justice within inside of us because we were the ones creating right uh life as we knew it so we we were we were definitely left with a lot of responsibility and so anyways you know i just wanted to say that um in in my integration home and in working in the past six years um addressing sexual violence and uh, domestic violence within my community and in indian country and in general yes we definitely view ourselves as uh, a nation uh you know, obviously a nation within a nation, but the original stewards to this land. And so I find it very interesting that the, the land uh, has a spirit as well. And so it wants to see the resurgence of its original um, uh, caretakers to to honor and acknowledge, right, all that it's birthed and all that's that's been done to it. And so I really think that when, you know, we're talking about these things, it's an innate thing for us to want to uh, lean back to self-sovereignty. And so a lot of times that's what our community is striving uh, to continue to maintain and, and um, preserve. So uh, after addressing violence within my community and also having been to prison and the, the scale and the weight of all of that is, is tremendous. Right. So I could spend my whole life in either one of those sectors and just totally be overworked and burnt out and everything because it doesn't end. And so what I was trying to do with uh, the experience and addressing violence in my community after coming home from prison, you know, I just uh, really was um, trying to engage in different spaces. And fortunately, on the Canadian portion of the community, um, there is uh Canada has has invested uh, in more of those Aboriginal First Nations uh, type of uh, resources. So on the northern portion of my community, I get to participate in restorative justice practices. I get to participate on our parole, our community parole committee. And so there's 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 different things like, do I even want a parole? Yes. Well, because like normally we don't. So on the U.S. portion, I don't have that on the Canadian portion. I get to practice in being in those spaces. So what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to develop something within the U.S. portion of my community. And so, you know, diving over that line and all the political jurisdictional pieces that are in that, it's very complex, but uh, for the most part, it has also strengthened us. And so uh, specifically, my community has been known for its innovation and its leadership amongst our other indigenous uh, communities. So, um, yeah, so with with sitting on, you know, the having my own personal experience about not having a place to live. I grew up on the Canadian portion. I don't have a, a, a U.S. address. Right. So I can't get paroled home because I don't have a U.S. address. And so thankfully, I had an aunt that took me in. But what happens is it's sitting on the parole board is that I'm seeing all of these people, right, um, coming back into places because there is no housing. And so what's happening is, is um, they're getting compromised and being put in situations that they either have to lie about 
um, because, you know, the, the parole officer or whoever's supervision is not going to not going to agree with where they are. And and sometimes it's even like, um, it's, you know, sometimes it's just even drug dealers trying to get to them before I can get to them. Right. So I'm trying they're in the, this really, really vulnerable space. So in the process of working and trying to prevent violence against women and children, we were able to develop in the beautifulness of balance, a men's division. And through the men's division, there were all these men coming home from rehab and from jail. And men were a huge source of violence in the community. And so what it was like, it's actually really great meeting point of saying, hey, well, you're coming out of these institutions. Why don't we lean in a little bit more about relationship and about personal healing and about doing all that? So that was part of um, the act and trying to reduce the the amount of violence that was specifically happening uh, to our women and children and, you know, to the community at large. So with that, um, I thought about real estate. So, you know, I, you know, back in the day, you know, living on the border, I'm not a stranger to trafficking and, and to making, um, making, um, making ends meet. And so, you know, kind of taking that business analogy, I thought about, you know, well, if we invested in tiny homes, we have neighboring Amish community that um, build uh, structures for at low cost. So I, you know, went and um, uh, reached out to our Amish community, um, budgeted out some tiny homes. And so uh, in, on our community, we don't pay, obviously, uh, land tax. So it was just feasible financially for me to get a, a piece of land uh, in the community, which is not easy to come by. But fortunately, one of the men that I was working with that was addressing violence against women had land. We put this land together and uh, we were able to fundraise enough money to buy our first tiny home from the Amish. I needed the funding to come purely from the community. I don't want to accept any money from the government. I don't want to accept any money from anybody that's going to tell me why I need to buy medicine or why I need to uh, buy clothes for or whatever. I don't want to have to justify um, all of that. And so I really wanted the community's investment in that way. And so we did taco sales and other things of that nature. But the, the reality is, is that it's been extremely irresponsible. It is irresponsible. My community has over 13 agencies overseeing a 15 mile community. And so you would think we would be the safest community in all of the Western hemisphere with as much law enforcement we have here. And, and unfortunately, we go to prison faster, longer, and we stay, um, stay in there, get denied, um, you know, just as, um, as many as outrageous statistics as there are any results. And so with that, I think it's extremely irresponsible for allowing all of this uh, investment, multi-million dollar investment of like border patrol, uh, state police, local police, county police, um, all of that. And then on top of Canada and our own local police agencies, and we have not, and they have not invested $1 into helping anybody uh, come home after extraction. And so I think that's what it's always been about. It's always been about extraction. And so I'm just really here. I've been, I, you know, typically I'm not even supposed to live this long. You know, unfortunately that that's the way it is in our communities. Uh, we're, we're burying our people weekly and especially our men. 
And so, you know, I just think that, you know, I'm just fortunate enough to have been able to live this long, uh, to have went through a lot of the adversities that my community goes through and just trying to find um, the, some some safety and some support, especially in these rooms. Um, there's been a, a, a tremendous outreach from my black sisters to include me onto these spaces and I've learned a lot from them. And so, you know, with that, we've now been able, the community has a level of belief that, you know, this could be a really great grassroots project and it would be something that, you know, the accolades would go to them and rightfully so. And so, you know, thanks Lex and, you know, we'll keep the conversation moving and um, I appreciate it. That's right. Thank you so much. And it is, it's, this is, we're here to talk, but we're also here to bond and, and strengthen our solidarity and strengthen the fact that we only win collectively. And so really appreciate just having you here, getting a chance to connect and, and set future steps for us to build on everything that we're sharing and have these be authentic thought partnerships. You spoke to something that I think is really important because every, every step forward we take towards the impacts we want, which means we're always going in the right direction, is also met with um, systematic responses that even when they're well-intended seek to bureaucratize what we're doing. And you just mentioned that saturation of agencies and you know, I, one of my big goals is that organizers, we learn to acknowledge how um, good we are at implementing things and work to, to take more control, to seize the means of production, if you will, of these actual models and implement them correctly. And so um, I really value that perspective because that helps ground kind of what this next challenge is going to be, which means we've gone somewhere, which is good, but now we have a new challenge. And um, so I want to transition over to you, Che, about the work you're doing with, with your community and how that analysis of, and both kind of like prevention and intervention, however we think about those words, but engaging in what actual harm looks like for communities that have been harmed by both the state and then there's interpersonal violence and how we talk about what it really means to have our feet on the ground, our bodies in the community and working to actually deliver the outcomes that make our community safer within a context where there's all these forces that try to sabotage that work for safety and what that leadership has looked like for you as you navigate, you know, pushing through what is, is a pathway that they constantly try to make narrower and narrower. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think something that um, Jonelle, Ash, and Andrea have really laid out is that communities, criminalized communities, have been building safety for ourselves for centuries. Um, that this work is not new, um, that it's come both out of necessity because of being targeted by the state, and it's also come from a deep love and sense of innovation inside of communities. Um, and so Vision Change Win created a community safety program um, very much as a part of that lineage and legacy. And, you know, when we were founded in 2014, our founder, Ijeris Dixon, um, she did a lot of permission asking from our elders. She did a lot of sitting with our folk and saying, you know, is it okay for us to start a program like this? And what was really sort of interwoven in that was recognizing that um, inside of my training and inside of her training, 
a lot of how we were learning about community safety and security was coming down through oral tradition. Um, many of our trainings were not written down. Um, many of the ways that we developed direct action teams, um, community safety, transformative justice teams, um, the ways that we were doing safety planning was just by elders teaching us. And so, you know, we got permission from elders to create this program um, and along with it to develop written resources that would allow for our trainings to start um, getting written down and also then disseminated to folks in a different way more broadly. Um, so the community safety program right now has a few different offerings. And, you know, I think the first one that I want to name is the um, Get Information Community Safety Toolkit that Ash had referenced earlier. Uh, the toolkit was uh, an amalgamation of community safety practices, anything from um, organizational structural safety, um, thinking about things like tax compliance, thinking about things like um, physical office space, um, and then direct action safety, right? So safety teams, and then uh, verbal de-escalation. And so the toolkit, again, came out of 30 years of oral tradition trainings that then got created into a toolkit. And I think what's so wonderful about the toolkit is that it's really meant for anybody who's in any kind of group. Um, if you are with a homie, if you have two neighbors, then the toolkit is for you. Um, if you are looking to build a community safety uh, program in your neighborhood, um, the toolkit is for you. And, you know, I think that that toolkit is a really good kind of metaphor for how we built the rest of the program out. And so, you know, because we come out of this legacy rooted in New York City, um, because we come out of this legacy and lineage founded by the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, who were our trainers, um, we very much believe that training should be accessible, that they should be practical, um, and that they should be rooted in our values. And so that means that when we are training and supporting organizations in developing safety structure, um, we very much believe in the practice of security over the performance of security. Um, we very much believe that safety and security can and should be led by women and femmes. Um, we very much believe that safety and security is for and by all bodies. And so we lift up disability justice in how we train and how we practice. Um, you know, part of our work inside of developing new systems of safety is also recognizing that we have spent so many years uh, learning carceral systems of punishment. We have spent more, most of us have spent more years practicing, learning, taking in those systems than anything else, including what we vision. And so we recognize that it's going to take a lot of practice and repetitions for us to unlearn and try on something different. And so we really believe in practice and practice and more practice. Um, and so inside of that, we offer trainings to left organizations. Um, you know, these trainings really range anything from how to develop a community safety team to hold direct action um, to how to develop policies and procedures inside of HR that really create an atmosphere that's safe, how to defend a nonprofit or C3 against state intervention, how to develop a collective that can intervene in violence on a neighborhood level, 
Um, and so all of these trainings really uh, work to embody these values and then encourage groups to practice. Um, I hope that one day um, our work isn't needed. I hope that one day the short-term crisis response um, trainings that we offer are not needed. Um, I think that one of the challenges that we've seen in the past few years is both acknowledging that crisis response has really seen an uptick. Um, I think in June, we had over 100 uh, requests from organizations in crisis for training support. And we are a small but mighty team. And so recognizing that uh, violence has increased, recognizing that the state continues to target our left organizations, um, it's really important that we get out of crisis response and also offer long-term structural support so that organizations can start developing teams, skills, and training over time, right? We want to be able to infuse organizations and groups with safety and security culture that you know, infuses how you do base building, that infuses how you develop leadership that really is inside of everything that you're creating. Um, so that when crisis happens, um, those structures are already in place and we're not scrambling to create in moments of trauma, in moments of adrenaline. Um, the last thing that I think is important to say about the community safety program is really that, you know, we really acknowledge that abolition is something that really requires practice and imagination, right? That many of us inside of community are starting to do that important political education relationship building with our families, you know, with our neighbors and saying, you know, there's something else. There's another option for safety. Um, and I think that that work is important. And one thing that always comes up especially with my mom, you know, whenever I talk about abolition is she says, yeah, I, I think that that's right. And so what do I do about my neighbors when they get into a really loud fight? And I can tell that someone's getting hit, you know, um, or, you know, my, my little cousin who's in Oakland, who will say, I think that that's, that's good. And I also, um, I feel really scared to walk home alone at night. Um, and so really answering that question of what instead, what else um, besides carceral policing, besides, you know, punitive ideas of justice is really us practicing community safety for ourselves. It's us developing neighborhood teams and pods that can build enough relationship that we're able to intervene in violence, in domestic violence, in intimate partner violence. And in order to do that, um, Collectively, we need a certain level of concrete skill, right? We need to be able to practice verbal and physical de-escalation together. And we need to be able to get to a place of trust inside of our communities, our groups, our orgs, where we're able to really try on new practices and know that we have each other's backs. And so Vision Change Win, you know, really encourages and creates structure and space for groups to explore new ways of intervention and also recognizes that um, in order to get to the place that we want to get to, in order to have a truly liberatory, free space state where we don't have to rely on the state for safety, where we have safety on our own, um, it's going to require a lot of practice. 
going to require a lot of trust and it's going to require a lot of dedication to building the world that we're visioning. Thank you so much. And that is, um, it's such a necessary piece of the conversation that you are articulating because it's the one that gets repressed the most because it's an articulation of what the answers actually are. And prior when we kind of acknowledged that there's this, this impulse in the state to bureaucratize even well thought out solutions is to maintain a certain chasm between decision makers and the community to further what I think is a subtext to everything, which is to say criminalized communities aren't able to develop their own solutions. They need an expertise. It's an obvious, very obvious kind of colonial mentality. It's one that I know we also, within our respective work, I know fight to make sure it's not replicated consistently in the kind of professional class of organizing as well in the nonprofit world, because it's one of the biggest obstacles to running the right campaigns is that same mentality, that same subtext. Um, and maybe I'm being generous in calling it a subtext because it's probably more than an unconscious impulse. It's probably a really intentional thing some of the time. And part of that is to take a term that you use, like oral traditions, generationally experiential knowledge, generational experiential knowledge is one of the things that, that this system itself fractures consistently. I mean, that's what incarceration is. It's family separation. It's fracturing skills being passed down. It's taking away our ability to sustain as communities. We were joking prior to the beginning of this panel about what would our post-revolution job be. And I think about that a lot as somebody who comes from generational incarceration, where the skills I may have inherited that I didn't because of the removal of the family members that were going to pass those things down. Uh, we often sit and wonder, well, what would my life be like if I had those skills? And, you know, I don't mean to digress too much about that point, because going back, I want to talk to us all about how um, how we know things work. I come from Los Angeles where, um, you know, we have a long and well-documented and well-exposed history of, you know, what people call gang violence and neighborhood organizations. And, you know, some people say neighborhoods, some people say gangs. Um, and this is, these are organizations one way or the other, for better and for worse. And these are sources of a lot of trauma and also a lot of hope. And it's a very complex thing. And there's been so many instances here in Los Angeles of youth-led peace work they create a generational synthesis between elders and young people and elders being a subjective term, people who might not be seen as old, but are old in the context of what we're talking about. And every time it's done and done in kind of isolation from law enforcement, it's effective. And it's so effective that it's historically always met with sabotage from law enforcement. We recently had a leader here in Los Angeles um, get reincarcerated via the RICO Act because it's very easy to accuse people of practicing organized crime when people who have records are talking to each other at all, even if they're talking to each other in the interest of saving lives in the community. It might be as simple as one leader talking to another leader saying, these young people need to cross through this neighborhood to get a job interview Let's collectively grant safe passage. And this is stuff that, that we do here on the ground every day in L.A. that, you know, when we talk about how does this how does this intersect with 
the field that we work in and the professionalization and the resourcing of our work. This is stuff that's very complicated and, and we're working hard on how do, we, how do we figure out ways to resource this. It's not a thing you can necessarily put in a grant application. There's safety considerations that we constantly have to navigate and be accountable to. And at the same time, we do need to resource it because these are leaders and these are experts who deserve a chance to sustain in their life while they put their life on the line and navigate really complicated generational legacies that ensure safety. And to the practice point that you mentioned, um, that's the kind of thing that can be resourced and turned into a new version of passing down those skill, skills that be that are allowed to go on uninterrupted that create a kind of exponential momentum in the direction of community safety. So I want to give us a chance, assuming there will be people who watch this and listen to this, to talk about how that really has worked. Um, I was asked to talk about some of the LA work and part of me wants to because there's lots to share and it's a very exciting moment. We've been able to build a lot of collective power here. And you know we're going up against the scope of the problem being so big in Los Angeles because everything here is so big because it's such a giant place. But I also wanna give us all the chance to talk about how things have worked. I was a part of, I was lucky as a young person that there were more neighborhood formations in pre-gentrified LA. They gave some of us safe spaces to go as youth, as youth that, that didn't necessarily have any kind of institutional stability in our life, who weren't even necessarily in school, to go and be safe, to go have our ideas be nurtured, to be able to thrive and bond and find that other young people wanted to be friends in the interest of doing something good in the community. And um, we were really successful, actually. And by we, I mean lots of people. I mean, there were many formations throughout L.A. County that were really successful in helping bring safety. And this is we were teenagers. I mean, this is a long time ago. This was before social media. There were not mechanisms at hand to do our own self-reporting. The kind of democratization of information hadn't happened yet. And what ended up happening was those successes, those stories only live in our minds, in our memory. And again, gentrification is very brutal because a lot of those people who were all together are now separated or far from each other, don't have the spaces we used to have. Not everybody made it, to be honest, as well. I and mean, we know about that, too. But those stories are really close to being lost. And I'll give a quick example because I'll never forget it. We had done a bunch of neighborhood peace work and we had used what was actually a, a teen pregnancy prevention grant <laughs> that had been delivered to some community center. But we used those resources um, as youth to instead do neighborhood peace work. And we didn't care. We just wanted to do what was most important. And we knew that things like family planning options and outcomes would be good byproducts of people being safer. And so we figured it would work. So in the five years of that grant, and I don't remember how much it was or what the details were, but it allowed us to do this practice, things got a lot safer. And I mean a lot, and it was intergenerational work. Um, you mentioned women and femme leadership, the aunties and the grandmas in the community were a part of it. It was very effective. So we met with a junior councilman who had just started and we said, hey, can you help us get that money again? And he said, you know, unfortunately, you guys are going to be victims of your own success because you've made the community safer and you're about to usher in gentrification. And we knew about gentrification in the abstract. You know, this is almost 20 years ago. But then like I hear it's happening in San Francisco, you know, what I mean? but we didn't know how that could look in a place as sprawling and disorganized as Los Angeles. So we're like, well, you know, let's think. I mean, obviously it planted a seed. And he said, so, yeah, it's unfortunate. And, and no, 
we're not going to give you any more money again. And that's that. That count junior councilman was Eric Garcetti, who's now the mayor of Los Angeles. And it's probably the only time I ever saw him be honest. And he kept it real with us and told us the truth and has since been, you know, your typical kind of neoliberal elected official. Um, that resonates with me because on the heels of those successes, and he was right, right? That community that we were in is no longer even remotely resembling what it was then. But on the heels of that, police chief William Bratton came to Los Angeles and carpet so to speak, the success and said the reason things in L.A. have gotten safer is because of broken windows policing. And and, you know, the dissonance we all felt in that moment was wild. We're like, this this is so strange to see this conversation happening. And, you know, right after he came and set up shop, things actually got worse again and more violent and more militaristic. Um, but I feel like we all have versions of this. And so. I want to take a little bit of a moment to ground in that if we can, because we all come from somewhere and I want a chance to hear from you all about that, because I think that although some of this is a new forefront and we're establishing a cutting edge of work, it comes from somewhere. We're bringing experiential generational memory that never got institutionalized and never got sanctioned. And so I think we got discouraged from talking about that. That memory I have, I didn't think about until very recently. That time I didn't think about until very recently. At the time, I didn't think I didn't consider that we were organizing. I wouldn't have used that term. We wouldn't have used that term. It was an opportunity for us as young people to be together and do things that felt good, really, to have community, to hang out and to be in the streets and to be in spaces and do things that felt good, that we felt were creating good opportunities for each other. So I want to open it up, really, and have folks talk about some of like the origins of, of how your analysis came to be so that the like academic trade show circuit doesn't come and take what we're talking about and, and turn it into permanent text with their name attached to it. So um, please chime in and, and just talk about that and give us a chance to know some of what has informed you all being the people that are playing such important roles in leading this work now. Um, yeah, great, great, um, great piece, Lex. So, you know, I, I just, um, the first institution is the education institution, and it's very deliberate why they don't teach us about emotions. And emotions are extremely, it's what moves the world. And because there is no emphasis on self-development, self health, self-awareness, self-discovery. We are taught, they, the first thing they want to do is you legally have to put your child into school, right? Because I want to be able to condition how they think, how they move, how they develop, what cultivates them. And so I think that it's it's very difficult when we get to this part in our lives, because now we're all grappling with like, well, where did we learn about the uh, disappointment? Where did we learn about accountability? Where did we learn about that? The violence inside of me could hurt, you know, the preciousness inside of you. And it's really that level of emotional intelligence and emotional justice that we really want to bring forth. And so there's the reasoning behind that is because when you know your power emotionally, you are extremely, right, unable. I, it's, it's going to be extremely hard for me to control you when you have already controlled yourself. 
And so what happened, like in prison, so when every choice is taken from you and you can't decide nothing, if the lights are on, when you eat, what you wear, anything, you have no choice. When every choice is taken from you, the only choice you have left is what kind of human you're going to be when you wake up and what kind of person you're going to be at the end of the day and who did you help out? And basically that's the bottom line of things. And so what's really interesting is that as much as, as much diversity and as much struggle and as much whatever, like we, we become extremely um, powerful. We are like an untapped potential in, in the, in the degrees and the realms of emotion and feeling. And so all of this was said like, Oh, women, you know, we, we really wanted to, and I just wanted to say that there was an original form of democracy on this continent and it lived through the lands and through the hearts and through the minds of women. So our community, there was no man that could ever hold representation to his family without the authority and the consensus of the women in that community. Could you imagine today why, why these found, founding fathers extracted that and they, and they deliberately constructed it so that they themselves right, would hold that title and would hold that responsibility. And what happens was, as they diminish all of the essence about being human and about the law of nature and the law of creation. And so that law, when, and so that law came from being on the land. How many of us are on the land? How many of us are watching? We have whole entire protocols to acknowledging nature because it has its own law and its own force. And that's what we use to guide us. We were a conscious culture. And so what happens is everything now, everything is out of, we are lost in convenience. We are lost in convenience. And so getting back, so everything about our traditional culture was formulated in the sense of like being, um, there was etiquette. And the etiquette was that before anything of great importance, you were to give gratitude you were to, if you ever met someone who was extremely grateful, you know, it's really hard to have a, you know, it's really hard to, to, you know, be in some kind of way, but that was the flux. That was the agreement. So we've all made an agreement to come into this realm, to come to this earth, to come to this mother and say, I'm challenging myself because I need to evolve. And in order to evolve, I need to feel, and we have a whole world running from themselves. Everyone is running from themselves. And it's a lot easier for me to hurt someone else when I'm running from myself. And even in these spaces, you know, we can even cause harm in the midst of like trying to prevent harm. There's so much complexity to this, but that's why the importance of self and that dedication and that intimacy is extremely important because we are deprived of it. Everything is like superficial to the extent that we have to do like that real, like the, if we think about the, the spirit of, a, of the virus and what it, it was like, a, it was like a, in some in many ways, there were so many sides to this, but it really helped a lot of people from what I've heard and what I've seen and experienced to focus on themselves. And we can't address the corruption outside of us if we haven't addressed the corruption inside of us. And so I can be super righteous, right? And trying to like, you know, put put men away that are murdering indigenous women, like un, 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 no, no nothing, no help, anything. Or, you know, what do I do to get back, right? And to try and my best, 
because I can't put peace into the world if I don't carry it. And there's been times where I had no peace because when you're sitting with raped women and raped children, trust me, you want to hurt somebody. You want to hurt somebody. And you got to sit there and you got to go, what am I going to do with this hurt? Because I can't just sit here in this because I will, people will go crazy. I will go crazy and people do. And so the more we're able to show up for each other in ways, that's what family did. We learned about accountability amongst our families. We learned how to communicate. We learned how to forgive. We learned how to negotiate. We learned all of those strategic needed skills within our families. And so many of us are so, uh, so we get to pick, right? So all of us right now in this moment, when I claim you, when I say this is my family, I have an obligation to you. And my obligation is to make sure that I'm contributing to your life the way that you've contributed to mine. And so there's some real great common grounds. And I think the more that we continue to push, they deliberately go after children. They always have. And even in these, even in this, where is the representation for children? Where was the representation for my children? There was no regard for them. There was no nothing for, there was nothing for, for the children. And nobody suffers more for that than them. Nobody will suffer more from our decisions than them. And I think that it's just really important to take ownership in that and to continue to push that this self-awareness and self-wellness is extremely primordial. It is how you get back to who you are authentically are because we're so busy trying to be somebody else instead of who we really are because that's all we see. And so in that visibility and, in, you know, and in that line and in that wave, like, I think it's beautiful because what you talked about, Lex, was the most natural form of, of, of anything, just being young, right? Just naturally wanting to be out there. That's communal living. And that's always been uh, a deep, um, a deep uh, thing and not in our blood. It's, it's literally in our essence, right? And all it does is it says that it's not that it's not there. It just needs ignition. It needs to be ignited. It needs to be tended to. It needs to be nourished. And when you have that, then you have more, you know, you have the empowerment that you want to see because youth have always brought hope. We have always been symbolic of hope and, um, you know, to all of that. So anyways, thanks, Lex. And uh, I'll I'll pass pass the wand. Thank you. I'd love to hear from others as well. Thank you. I I really appreciate, Janelle, what you shared around self-work. Um, I think that building safety that does not rely on and that's outside of the state necessarily requires um, doing a great deal of internal work around how our trauma responses impact um, how we deal with violence. I think that, you know, like when I started doing safety and security work, um, I, I was asked to just follow somebody around in action. You know, I was asked to show up somewhere 
and pointed to a direction and told, just do what they do. Um, and I think that through that first experience, I learned more about myself than I have um, in the past five years of practice. And one of the things that came up for me is that um, I realized that I have a strong inclination under pressure um, towards appeasing and towards flight. And that that's something that's deeply ingrained in me and that it's really served me, that there have been plenty of moments in my life where that saved my life. And I think that for all of us, no matter if, you know, you're going to be a part of a safety and security team, or if you just want the skill to be able to deescalate a verbal fight on your block, um, getting a more intimate sense of those trauma responses in each of us allows for us to have more options. Um, and then I think there's a next step. You know, it, it can be very easy for abolition to become only an intellectual project. Um, and I think that that is a trapping of the state. I think that that is very much something that the state wants for us so that it can co-opt our language without our values. And it already is, right? Um, there are plenty of transformative justice programs that are um, run by the state that do not mean what we mean when we say transformative justice. Um, and so I think that the next step in really creating a, a deeper understanding is developing strong relationships. You know, I think that when a lot of, when we do initial trainings with organizations, um, specifically around verbal or physical de-escalation, a lot of the questions that come up is how can I practice? Where can I practice? Um, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a team of folks yet. Um, and I think that the first place to practice is where you live. It's with your family. Um, even if you're not, you know, practicing blocks or, or practicing de-escalating with your voice, um, knowing everyone on your block, um, and having an, an initial conversation with them about the cops. Um, I think that that's the uncomfortable work. Um, that's the work around coalition that starts to create infrastructure for de-escalation down the line. And then, you know, I think that it, for some of us, um, working with blood family is a place where we find <laughs> um, uh, really great practice partners, <laughs> you know. Um, and I just want to keep encouraging where it's safe and where it's a good, healthy amount of um, friction and growth um, to keep building with our blood family. Um, knowing that that's not possible for everyone and knowing that for those who it is possible for, um, it will it will change the world immensely. Um, having hard conversations with my mama who lives in L.A. Um, about abolition has been, I think, some of the most deep political work that I've done. Um, and I think that she asked the questions that most people are thinking when we're on these panels, you know, because for her, it's a very practical uh, question and ideology. How do we do this without the state? I see where the state fails. And I also see where we don't have answers yet. So how do we build answers? And I just really appreciate um, folks who are in that struggle with their blood folks and with the folks that they came from, because it means that we're getting um, we're getting practical and we're getting really wide and we're getting past 
maybe the people who think like us or look like us or talk like us or have the same education level as us um, and into what I think is what we need for mass base. Um, so I'm really excited about continuing doing this work. I'm really excited to keep building with all of you. And I'm really excited for that panel um, where we get to talk about, you know, how do you talk about abolition with your cousins, um, with your neighbors, with your mom, um, with your siblings? Yeah, thanks. So. Yeah, I mean, I think what I love about the way that this is circling around is that, like, you, as much as I love the Angela Davises of the world, that you can actually be a regular smegular around the way kid and be an abolitionist, right? Like, most of us, even on this panel, panel didn't get there just because we, like, read books. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm a person that believes deeply in study and discipline and rigor. I became an abolitionist because I saw it didn't work, right? I saw that the prison industrial complex was disproportionately impactful in negative ways to people who I loved, like people like my brother, people like the people I went to school with, right? Um, it wasn't it wasn't just inspiration through study. And I think that what I love about the work that you heard on this on this panel is that we are de we are in the process of developing tools for people to actually be the doers of abolition, not just the thinkers of abolition. Both things are necessary. Um, but, you know, as, as Che just so eloquently said, this is a practice. Practice is a doing thing, right? If I want to practice being excellent at the clarinet, I have to play it, right? And just like if we want to be excellent in abolition, we have to try. And perfection is not required for us to be good abolitionists. Accountability is. That's the whole point of building a world beyond punitive bureaucracies. Um, and so I'm excited for all of the folks that are going to have those complicated and sometimes challenging conversations with their folks. I'm excited about the folks that are going to be doing direct action and risking arrest because they're fighting back against the system that is harming them. I'm excited about the folks that will go and sit in probably terrifyingly boring city council meetings or county commission meetings and fight about budgets. I'm excited about the people that are going to run for elected position and be like, yo, I'm going to tear this thing down from the inside out. Um, I'm excited about the folks that are going to be like, I'm committed to getting these toolkits, using these websites and doing the political education that is required to help more people be able to radically imagine a new way, because it's going to take all of us doing all of the things to actually see us get there. Right. The, both the, the journey to abolition and the destination. So I'm proud to be one in the number. I feel blessed to be in love with so many people on this panel and, and to be so you know, impacted personally by the work that y'all are doing to see an abolitionist future. And I, I'm excited uh, that the doors of our movement are wide open for more people to get engaged. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely didn't learn abolition from a book. Um, I definitely learned from a very young age at, I think, eight, that the state was not going to protect me from violence. And then I learned... Um, from my family's history, that the state had never stepped in to protect anyone, including my my mother and my grandmother from violence. And the state um, has perpetrated violence against all of us. And again, I learned at a very young age that police were the source of the very kind of violence that people say, oh my gosh, but if we don't have police, what's going to happen with sexual violence? Police are prime perpetrators of sexual violence. And I learned that at a very young age. And I think that's... Um, so I, I was clear about that and I was clear about when I got safe and what made me safe. And it was when I got safe and secure housing. 
It was when I got a living wage job. It was when I had access to friends and community who could step in, whose house I could run to when other forms of violence appeared at my own house, who had the skill and the ability and the willingness to step in and, and do accountability work. And I learned that um, before I heard Angela Davis break down a case for abolition. And then I was like, oh, that's what they, <laughs> I was like, I didn't know you could do that, but that's clearly what we need to do. And so, but that was like a, a long way after all that. Right. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of our folks come from. And so I think sometimes when we say, you know, our folks aren't ready for defund police, they're not ready for abolition. I'm like, everybody I know who's a survivor knows what they need to be safe. And very, and they what they want is the violence to stop, and what they want is many more options for safety. And ultimately, defunding police is a survivor-led movement because we want more for ourselves and for each other and for our communities than was available to us. We want um, all those things I described that help me make make me safe. We want, you know, in the last year we we extracted $840 million from police departments. That's already going to make the world safer because they're a source of violence. And they don't prevent violence. That's the other piece, right? Is they show up after the fact, maybe, if you're lucky. And when they do show up, it's Russian roulette, whether they're just going to perpetrate more violence or interrupt the violence or do nothing. And so um, taking funds away from them already is stopping violence. Then when we... And unfortunately, we didn't invest the same amount of money. We only got $160 million in investments in community-based safety strategies. And that's the setup, right? Is that we need everything in those police budgets, everything the BREATHE Act would take out of police budgets across the country, and more to actually have genuine, lasting community safety so that everyone can have access to quality, safe, accessible housing. Everyone can have access to living wage employment. Everyone can have access to quality, accessible, appropriate, non-coercive healthcare and supports um, for disabled people to make the world an accessible place for everyone. Those are immigration status for everyone. Those are the things that will stop violence. And those are things that require way more money than even the $100 billion a year that we're investing in policing right now. And so I think that's the piece where, um, you know, the, the, the question around defund is not just about defund. It's about investing in building a world where we can all have every single thing we need to be safe um, and to be secure and not just survive and thrive. And so that's the world that we're fighting for. I think also... It's about um, not getting lost in the convenience in the way that Janelle said. I think sometimes we're like, oh, if not the cops, who else are we going to call? There always needs to be someone else to call, someone somewhere else to put someone. No, we have to, like Janelle said, take responsibility for our own and each other's safety and transformation. And that means we need to build... Um, Mariam always talks about needing to build skills, relationships, and institutions of safety in our community as well, right? It's about meeting material needs, but it's also about building, as uh, uh, Che was saying, the skills um, and the transformation internally and externally to be each other's safety. It's about building the relationships that make it possible for us to be each other's safety um, in our own blood families, in our communities, as Janelle and Che were saying. And then it's about building the institutions that will help um, permeate that safety. And I, the last thing I want to say is like, there's not going to be one model that replaces what we have now. And it's not going to be someone else. 
And it's also not going to be always responding to the moment of crisis, like Che was saying. It's going to be backing it up to make sure that we get to a place where the crisis doesn't happen, that we don't get to a place where someone is unhoused and experiencing unmet mental health needs and experiencing violence from everyone, including the state. We're going to back it up so that people don't get there. And then when there are moments of crisis, we're going to have a thousand tools and skills and relationships to intervene. And so... Um, that's going to require not just one finding that one model that we're then going to replicate around the country. Um, our colleague that uh, Che mentioned, Jaris Dixon, often says there's not going to be a movement 911. It's not going to be an alternative 911. It's going to be a million different experiments at the local level that reflect the local conditions, like in your neighborhood, Lex, like what it looks like um, in Aquasasne, what it looks like um, in Atlanta, what it looked like in central Brooklyn, where you and I organized Che as part of Safe Outside the System to figure out what that could look like in a 45 block radius. That's what it's going to be. So I'll pitch one last website um, that uh, we launched this week called One Million Experiments. That's exactly about figuring out all the ways that we can be, as Ash was saying, the doers, not just the people who are like, oh yeah, someone should really do that. Right. <laughs> and I've been guilty of that. I've been like, my job is to fight the cops. Y'all's job, Che, is to build the other world and hurry up because I'm getting tired of fighting the cops and I can't pull people out of the system fast enough. And now what we all need to understand is that both things are all our jobs, right? Um, and that building that world is necessary and it can't, we can't be afraid of, as Ash was saying, stepping out, experimenting, trying, failing, being accountable, making reparations and trying again because whatever we do is going to be so much better and offer so much more for all of us on this call and all the people we care about than what we have right now. So that's my vision of safety for the future. Well, thank you all so much. Um, like I said, I'm hoping this is just a blip on a continuum that we all get to cultivate together on crafting this vision, stewarding this vision, fighting for this vision, being guardians of this vision. I feel sometimes like it's easy to get so immersed in our work and in our struggle. And just hearing you all talk is very empowering for me because it reminds me that in a very short time, we've changed a lot and it's a profound shift. And it's a profound shift that's in part being driven by folks who are really paying attention to the lessons of the past. And that's allowing us to, I think, safeguard these solutions even more. And that preparation is exciting for me to watch. It's like very embedded in this conversation. And you said a thing earlier, Che, that I appreciated about security and safety versus the performance of security. Because the performance of security, in my opinion, is synonymous with the performance of authority. And it's there to imply that you're never safe. And so you either let the system, a system, brutalize you, or somehow you're, you're left to be brutalized by your own community. And neither are true. They're both myths constructed to support that kind of state violence that's been so normalized and an opportunity to dismantle spectacles that have been so damaging to us psychologically growing up in that spectacle of harm and then subsequent punishment, the manipulation of the grief that we go through. Janelle, you spoke to how we feel when we go through something the anger that we feel, the moments of fantasizing about vengeance that we have, maybe even moments where vengeance or retribution has been carried out. The fact that we're not always safe, the fact that we're not always safe for other people to be around us, the fact that there are people in moments who aren't safe to be in the community. And the idea that we aren't thinking about that, aren't practicing that, aren't engaged in that, 
is another way where they try to reduce what we're doing to, like you said earlier, um, it being an intellectual exercise or an abstraction or something that only lives in the kind of pontificating of a few folks that people want to listen to that gets placed in this kind of, um, I don't know, performance of vision. This is not that. That is there to help maybe tell a story, but this is about real practice that means engaging with those moments, that means being in touch with our own grief, our own anger. That's not kind of this reperpetuation of like a Western notion of forgiveness either. One doesn't have to forgive to be an abolitionist. One doesn't have to embrace or bring people back into their lives to be an abolitionist. It's about the idea that safety and generational healing lives in communities that understand the complexities of these issues and that we're willing to and starting that practice of staring our grief in the face and processing the anger that we might feel and understanding that the the totality of the human experience is completely what drives this vision rather than the idea that anything we're talking about is a fantasy. And in a very short time, I know many of us went from having so many people tell us that abolition was silly and unrealistic and should not be contained in any of our demands to now something totally different. And I say that as kind of a testament to the power that you all have built and the work that you all have led and that we get to continue to build on top of that momentum and build out this leadership. And you said earlier, Ash, about, you know, could be a regular schmegular person like that's everybody. There's so many leaders and experts and just incredible people in the community. And the idea that the professionalized class has tried to kind of alienate from that and we get to we get to dismantle that, too, um, I think is one of the most radical things we can do. And it's part of what kind of helps propel me forward all the time, even if I feel tired. So I felt like all of that lived in this conversation and the hands that are present in this conversation are very much holding that. And so it's a real privilege to talk to you all. We're wrapping up now. Um, and I hope to see you all again very soon. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.